Luke 3, verses 1 to 14. So we consider the topic of true repentance and its fruits. Now God's word. Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into all the region round about the Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance unto remission of sins as it stands written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ye ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough ways smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the multitudes that went out to be baptized of him, to flee from the wrath to come. Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you, that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And even now the axe also lieth at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. And the multitudes asked him, saying, What then must we do? And he answered and said unto them, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. He that hath food, let him do likewise. And there came also publicans to be baptized. And they said unto him, Teacher, what must we do? And he said unto them, Exhort extort no more than that which is appointed you. And soldiers also asked him, saying, And what must we do? And he said unto them, Extort from no man by violence, neither accuse anyone wrongfully, and be content with your wages. Of God's word. The third chapter of Luke's gospel marks a significant turning point in the presentation of the story of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ as Luke presents it. This is especially crucial in the estimate of Luke. We see this if you turn to Acts, the 10th chapter, verse 36 and verse 37. Luke, you know, is the author of Acts as well. And in the 10th chapter of that book, we read at verse 36, "...the word which he sent unto the children of Israel, preaching good tidings of peace by Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all." that saying, Ye yourselves know, which was published throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism which John preached, even Jesus of Nazareth, etc. In Luke's thinking, there is a crucial difference now that John the Baptist has come. After John preached, the gospel becomes proclaimed in clarity. And when we come to the chapter in the gospel of Luke, we have this significant turning point from the prologue about the birth and childhood of Jesus, now to the adult ministry of Jesus. With just one or two verses, Luke spans all the life of Jesus from his infancy 
a story about his going to the temple when he is 12 years old, and then to when Jesus is about 30 years old. Luke now turns and looks significantly at the ministry of Jesus Christ. And in order to do that, he must first talk about John the Baptist and the ministry of John the Baptist. Luke gives a very precise dating to John's appearance as a preacher, which is interesting because we don't have nearly as precise a dating of the birth of Jesus Christ. So what is the emphasis in Luke's thinking? He doesn't deny the birth of Christ, the virgin birth, or any of these things. But Luke says, now you see things really heat up. Now the story really gets going. And now, very precisely, I want to date. John was in the wilderness, and this begins the story I want to tell you. John is presented in the role and in the function of ultimate prophet. And we must remember that. John the Baptist is an Old Testament figure. What does that mean? He's an Old Testament figure. We read about him, Pastor, in the New Testament. Yes, but in terms of God's work of salvation and the bringing in of the kingdom of God and the accomplishment of that redemption that was foreshadowed in the Old Testament, John is the transitional figure. Jesus tells us that all the law and prophets prophesied up until John, and since that day, men press into the kingdom of God. John is the last of the Old Testament prophets. And John has the same kind of function as an Old Testament prophet, even though he is the one who is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. Look at verse 1 here. Luke says, Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. He begins by dating John's ministry after the manner of an ancient historian. There's a very elaborate chronological syncretism. In that day, there was no uniform way of dating. You know, sometimes people make the mistake of thinking, well, now, what did say about 30 A.D.? Well, because, you see, the system of dating in the year of our Lord comes after the beginning of the Christian era. We'd um, see if anyone were ever to hand you a coin that was dated, let's say, 47 B.C., you should know right away that there's something suspect about that coin. Because 47 years before the birth of Christ, they didn't know it was 47 years before the birth of Christ. Well, the point is made. How did they date things in those days? Well, they did so by looking at the reign of significant rulers in the region round about your story. And so Luke is following the same pattern of an ancient historian, giving a precise identification of the time, which this afternoon you don't want me to go into the details of this, we would compute to be about 27 A.D. All right, and if you want some reading material on that, I can provide it. Why does Luke do this? Why does he use the, the uh, dating technique of the Greek historians and so forth? Why is he following that pattern? I want to suggest it's because he wants us to see the Christian gospel in the setting of world history. Luke does not want us to think this is just a localized, interesting story among the Jews. Now he says, what is taking place here has international significance, has world significance, is crucial for the life of mankind everywhere. And so he puts it in the context of world history and not just in the context of the development of the Jewish religion. And of course, 
it is um, of great significance that it's Luke, the Gentile gospel writer, who does that. Luke wants us to see that Jesus is the Savior of the world, and the life of Jesus has a bearing upon world history of international significance. He tells us in this verse that Pilate was prefect of Judea at this time. We know from secular history that Pilate occupied that position for the years 26 to 36 A.D. And then Luke mentions the former territories of Herod the Great. Herod, the monster, the great, not great in the sense of magnanimous, great in the sense of very significant. Herod, the one who had a great deal of power. Herod, of course, had slaughtered the Bethlehem infants in an attempt to crush the ministry of this one Jesus who was about to begin. But Herod had died. And now his territory was divided up among his sons who hated each other. Herod not only had a legacy of hatred in world history, his own family represented the character of the man and his rule. And his territory was divided up between his sons. The one that is mentioned here, Herod, is not Herod the Great, but rather his son Herod Antipas. And then we have Philip mentioned, who was his son by Cleopatra, interestingly enough. And then thirdly, we have mention of Lysanias. And I, I know this doesn't have anything to do precisely with my sermon this afternoon, but being an apologist, I cannot help but remind you that Wellhausen, one of the best-known names of the higher critics at the turn of this century, Wellhausen, the great and scholarly historian, the one who knew better than the Word of God and who could bring down its historical accuracy, made the embarrassing mistake, a notorious historical blur, in accusing Luke of inaccuracy about Lysanias. We have, subsequent to, uh, to Wellhausen's day, found secular confirmation of Luke's accuracy in reporting to us the rule of Lysanias. Wellhausen is dead, and the Gospel of Luke lives on. In verse 2, Luke includes a reference to the Jewish high priesthood as part of his dating scheme. And uh, if you know anything about the Jewish system of rule, you'll find something very peculiar about this. He says, in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Well, now wait a minute. Who's the high priest? Is it Annas or Caiaphas? The Jews are supposed to have one high priest. Well, the reason two names are given is that though the office was singular, it was supposed to be a lifetime office according to Jewish conviction, the Romans had a tendency to change the holder of that office at will. When they didn't like what the high priest was doing and they thought he was contrary to their political aspirations, then they'd just dump him. And this is what had happened. Annas had held the office uh, from 6 to 15 AD and actually retained the title and we know if you read later in the Gospels, in uh, the early uh, chapters of Acts, Annas really has behind-the-scenes power. Annas continues to be the power behind the throne, as we say. But he has been deposed, in title anyway, by the Romans, and it was turned over to his um, sons. Eliezer was high priest in the years 16 and 17 A.D. Then Caiaphas ruled from the years 18 to 37, and four other sons later on. And so you're, here you have two high priests, really, an anomaly, Annas and his son Caiaphas. It was precisely at this time, Luke says, with all this buildup, you almost hear the drum roll, you know, with all of this now, it was just at this time that the word of God came unto John. And what an expression that is. God didn't come to John. John didn't decide he was going to go out and have a ministry. 
the Word of God. John, the exact uh, expression, the traditional way of describing a divine commissioning of a prophet. The Word of God came to Jeremiah, and the Word of God came to Hosea, and the Word of God came to Joel, and now the last and the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, the Word of God, came to John. What is the emphasis here? The emphasis is that the message that John preached was not his own. His message did not arise from his own imagination. It did not come from his own wisdom, from his own calculations. John didn't survey the political scene and the cultural scene and consider his religious aspirations and think, well, this sounds like a good message. No, the word of God came to John. It was an objective word. It was a message from outside of John. It originated in God, and John was but the mouthpiece. John was but the conduit and the channel of the truth that God had for his people. And we have to learn something from this, it seems to me. We, should, we must hear God's messengers as we would hear God himself. It is a grave mistake when the word of God is being preached to just look at the preacher and say, well, that's your opinion. If the preacher is not preaching the Word of God, then of course that must be corrected. But to the degree that it's the Scriptures that are being proclaimed, we must hear this as God Himself speaking. And so when John came to preach the baptism of repentance, he preached God's Word. And we're told by Luke that John received his calling and John received his message while he was in the desert, in the wilderness. Indeed, that's exactly where the narrative has left John if you look back at Luke 1, verse 80. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his showing unto Israel. All right, time out. Chapter 2 of Luke. We get the story of the birth of Jesus, the virgin birth of Jesus, the visit of the Magi, and so forth. And now chapter 3. In the 15th year, etc., etc., the word of God comes to John. So now we pick up the narrative again with John the Baptist. He was in the wilderness. We find him in the wilderness. Now the Word of God has come to him. The specific area is more closely identified in verse 3 for us. He came into all the region round about the Jordan preaching the baptism of repentance. We see that it's the neighborhood of the Jordan River. And if you do a study of uh, John's Gospel, chapters 1 3 and 10, you will see that John the Baptist was active on both sides of the Jordan River. But what was his ministry? What was the function that John the Baptist had? What was his message? Well, we read that John is described as a preacher. He came into all the region round about the Jordan preaching, preaching the baptism of repentance unto the remission of sins. John is described as preaching. The book characterizes him as a preacher as well, by the way. But what's of interest to me is that Jesus' ministry is described as that of preaching. And the followers of Jesus were called preachers. And so at this time, God sent a lot of preachers to his people. John was the leader of them. Jesus doesn't preach before John. John preaches before Jesus. John preaches in preparation for the preaching of Jesus. Jesus' followers follow in his example. They come preaching. And we mustn't overlook the significance of this because we're so accustomed to preaching. Big deal. 
We can hear preaching every Sunday. We could hear it every day if we turn on Channel 40. You can get preaching in abundance in our day and age. But you must remember that up until the establishment of the time of God's kingdom, preaching was not the characteristic of God's people. It was not a common occurrence. Isaiah had said that in the day in which God would act for people, in the day in which the great jubilee would be established, the good news would be preached. And so Luke picks up on this. Remember, Luke's the one who's going to tell us in chapter 4 about Jesus preaching in the synagogue at Nazareth, saying, This day has the word of Isaiah been fulfilled in your hearing. I have come preaching. And so John the Baptist now, in the ministry of preparation, is a preacher. He preaches a message of preparation, fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah, Luke tells us, where Isaiah in chapter 40 of that prophecy had said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ye ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough ways smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Luke is the only gospel writer that quotes Isaiah's prophecy in full, by the way. And uh, it was exactly predicted by John the Baptist's father. He would have this ministry of preparation for the coming Messiah. In Luke 1, verses 76 and 77, in the Benedictus of uh, Zacharias, the father of John, we read, Yea, and thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the Most High, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to make ready his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people, in the remission of their sins. This was prophesied when John the Baptist was a baby. His father said, And you, child, you will be a preacher of preparation. You'll go before the face of the Lord. You'll make ready his ways by preaching repentance unto the remission of sins. And so we find the fulfillment of his father's desire and his father's prophecy. As John the Baptist comes preaching, preaching even as Isaiah the prophet of old had said, what John prepares the way, in the way that John prepares the way, is the removal of sins of the people. John preaches, we must repent of our sins so that the Messiah might come. The avenue traveled by the Lord will be made easier when it is straight, when it is level, in contrast to the undulating desert and the meandering roads that are found in the wilderness. And so when the Lord comes, now all the crooked things will be made straight. Now all the ups and downs in the desert road will be leveled out. And so he'll have a flat, straight highway to approach, metaphorically, when people have their rough ways made smooth, when people have their ups and downs leveled out, when their crooked ways are made straight, then the road by which Jesus approaches us is made easier. And how is it that we do that? It's by means of repentance. Repentance prepares the way of the Lord. And when we repent, and when Jesus comes, John preaches, then all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Every flesh. Not just the Jews. Again, Luke wants to make that point. All flesh, even the Gentiles, will see God's salvation. You remember in Luke 2, verse 30, how Simeon the priest had said that he had seen the salvation of Israel because he held the Christ child in his arms. 
Indeed, Paul would later preach that all flesh, including the Gentiles, sees the salvation of God as the word of Jesus Christ is preached. Well, we've seen John's setting, and we've seen his function as a preacher of preparation. Let's pay special attention now to John's message. John preached on the necessity and on the significance of baptism. Now, we need to correct an error that is often made by theologians that are not reformed in their outlook on the question of the sacraments and baptism. John did not preach Christian baptism. That sounds like a very strange thing to say, and people are often taken aback when they hear that, but it must be true. John is not the model of Christian baptism for the simple sake that Christian baptism baptism is triune. It's into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And John's baptism is something that even Jesus symbolically and representatively would go through. Jesus then institutes another baptism which is into his name as well as that of the Father and the Holy Spirit. John's baptism is a preparatory baptism. It's not the baptism of union with Christ in virtue of his death and resurrection. It's not a baptism that signifies and seals the blessings of the new covenant. John's baptism is Old Testament baptism because John's ministry is Old Testament ministry. So let's keep that straight now. We are talking about a baptism that is not in all ways, not in every respect, like Christian baptism. The Jews knew a ritual before the coming of Jesus knew a ritual of baptism. In fact, in Hebrews 9, verse 10, we read that there were various baptisms, various washings that were known to Jews prior to the days of the New Covenant. I think another thing might be said to correct some misconceptions about John's baptism and Christian baptism. It would appear that John's baptism was a pouring of water from above. Why would that be? Well, judging from the analogy that John and Jesus both use to the baptism of Jesus, how does Jesus baptize? With the Holy Spirit from above. Jesus pours forth the Holy Spirit that then baptizes the church. In the same way, John sees his baptism as a preparation for that and draws an analogy we would be led to think, therefore, that he did not immerse people, but rather effused them, poured water over them. And at the time of Jesus' baptism, we read that Jesus and John went into the water. People have uh, taken that word into to imply immersion. It says, they went into the water, to which I reply, they went in the water. And if the into means submerged in the water, then the baptizer was submerged as well as the one he was baptizing. Now, we believe that John's ministry was a ministry of baptism. It was not Christian baptism, and it was not immersion baptism. We believe that it was a baptism of repentance, preparing the way of the Lord for the coming of the Messiah. It was a baptism, most likely, pouring from above. Now, what was this baptism all about? Was this outward ritual important in itself? No. The outward ritual was supposed to symbolize a washing away of sin, due to an inner attitude of repentance. And that's why it's described very exactly in verse 3 as the baptism of repentance unto the remission of sins. The baptism does not remit the sin. 
the repentance, the inner attitude is what brings re, uh, remission. And that inner attitude is outwardly symbolized by the act of washing with water. Forgiveness was unthinkable without a turning from sin. But it's not so today. We live in a day where a gospel is preached that doesn't have power. A gospel is preached that does not break hearts. A gospel is preached that does not reform lives and convert people from one way of living to another. A gospel is preached that allows people to believe that they can be forgiven even though they have not changed. A gospel that says, go on living like hell and you can still make it to heaven. And it's a false gospel. And it's a soul-damning gospel. And when it's preached in the name of God, it's a blasphemous gospel. There can be no remission without repentance, without broken, changed, redirected hearts. And John says the Messiah calls for that kind of people, a people with hearts prepared to meet him, a people who are inwardly changed, turning from their sins in grief to live now in obedience to God. John was summoning the people to do was to express a repentant attitude by the outward act of baptism. He said, come forward, be baptized, and show that you are a changed person. You are preparing the way of the Lord. We need to focus now on what this means, repentance. The word to repent means to turn around, to have a change of mind, so that my, my mentality my perspective on life, my convictions are all changed. Repentance involves the intellect. It involves the emotions. And it involves volition as well. First, it involves the intellect because in repentance I say, I know what sin is. I know that I am a sinner. I confess. I say what God says about me. I have broken his law and I know its consequences. And so we must know this. Repentance doesn't come when we just have some kind of vague uneasiness inside us. It must be intellectually defined by the law of God and my violations of it so that I know what the penalty of sin will be. But repentance is more than intellectual. And I'm afraid that often in circles where theology is stressed and is known perhaps better than in other Christian circles. There is such emphasis upon the intellect that we forget the fact that repentance is an emotional experience too. The Bible tells us that we should grieve over sin. We should hate our sin. We should turn from our sin not simply because we want to escape the fires of hell. I have known people I suppose you have too. Maybe you've seen this in your own life. People who will turn from sin and will say the right words because they don't want to go to hell, but not because they have learned to hate their sin, not because they find it foul and polluting and terrible in the sight of God, not because they see it as alien to the character of God, as darkness in the, in the presence of light, not because they, they find it detestable, but they'll turn from their sin because though they love it, they don't want to have to pay the price of sin and go to hell. I want to suggest to you that that's not true repentance. 
That's not true repentance. And though it is a heretical, I would like to illustrate my point by saying there's a genuine sense in which true repentance can be seen in a person who says, God, I am sorry for my sin, though you should send me to hell for it. Indeed, you should. I recognize your justice in so doing. I'm not saying these words, God, just to get into favor with you. I'm saying these words because that sin is detestable to me. Sin should be an emotional experience of loathing what we have done in the face of God. And sin is volitional as well, not only intellectual and emotional, but sin means to be, I mean, repentance means to turn around from sin and to exercise our will to make a renewed effort to obey God. Now, don't get me wrong, sin is not penance. I, I keep saying sin. Repentance is not penance in the Romanist sense of the word. You know, the Roman Catholic Church teaches us that uh, we go to the priest and we confess our sins, and then the priest on us certain forms of penance, things that we are to do to go out and show that there is a congruent merit to our lives that makes God's saving us appropriate. We must demonstrate and prove by our works that we are worthy of salvation. Repentance is not that. Indeed, that is an abhorrent doctrine. The Bible teaches us that we cannot make satisfaction for our sins. You know, if uh, a Romanist priest were to tell me that I had to give all my money to the poor and offer my body to be burned, it still could not come anywhere close to satisfying the justice of God for what I had done wrong. Penance is not what God asked. Repentance is. Repentance is drawing near to God in humility, not saying, look, I've done so much, don't you think I'm worthy of salvation? It's rather, I have done so much to make me. Why would you ever love a worm like me? Repentance is a humble, contrite act. Look at James 4, verses 8 to 10. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall exalt you. Repentance means, first of all, coming in a humble spirit. The Bible tells us that when we are humble and confess our sins... God is faithful, and God is just, and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. 1 John 1.9 Moreover, repentance cannot stand apart from saving faith. Repentance is the other side of the coin of saving faith. If we are sorry for our sins, but we do not turn to the only provision of salvation, then we are relying upon ourselves, our changed heart, and our own attitude to make us acceptable in the sight of God. But the Bible tells us we are acceptable in the sight of God only for the merits of Jesus Christ. And therefore, true repentance cannot be simply a turning from sin. It must be also a turning to the Savior. From sin to the Savior. In our larger catechism, number 76, we are asked this question, what is repentance unto life? 
and we read, Repentance unto life is a saving grace wrought in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and Word of God, whereby out of the sight and sense, not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of his sins, and upon the apprehension of God's mercy in Christ to such as are penitent, he so grieves for and hates his sin, as that he turns from them all to God, purposing and endeavoring constantly to walk with him in all the ways of new obedience. Do you see all the elements that we've been talking about over the last few minutes? Repentance means turning from sin to the grace of God. Repentance involves recognizing the penalty of sin, grieving over it, and endeavoring to walk in new ways before God, new ways of obedience. And repentance is necessary if anyone would be saved. Luke 13, verses 3 and 5. I tell you, no, but except ye repent, ye shall, in all, ye shall all in likewise perish. Verse 5, I tell you, no, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Turn to Acts 2, verse the preaching on the day of Pentecost. The same truth is set forth, Acts 2, 38. And Peter said unto them, Repent ye, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ unto the remission of your sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repentance is necessary if we'd be saved. There's a gospel being preached today that is not a gospel of repentance. And therefore it's not a saving gospel. Because there can be no true faith without a repentant heart that makes faith appropriate. Repentance must be found in those who would be saved. It's only repentance that leads to the receiving of God's pardon. Isaiah 55 verse 7 had proclaimed that in the Old Testament already. Isaiah 55 at the seventh verse. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous and his thoughts and let him return unto Jehovah and he will have mercy upon him to our God for he will abundantly pardon the wicked man must forsake his ways. He must turn around and return to God, and then he will be pardoned. Jesus is not an additive to our lives. Jesus cannot be accepted as a Savior unless a person is sorry for his sins for which he needs salvation. Repentance is necessary to be saved. When we have a gospel that's proclaimed, saying your life is pretty good as it is, add Jesus and things will go even better. That is not the gospel the Bible gives. When we have a gospel being proclaimed that says you need self-esteem, that's the problem in your life. And so don't worry about sin and don't sing hymns about being a worm. That's not the gospel, though it's very prominent here in Orange County. The gospel is a gospel of repentance and saving faith. Take away repentance and saving faith is unnecessary. Take away repentance and salvation is a mockery. Take away repentance and you no longer have what the New Testament teaches, but you have now a message devised by the imagination and the convenience of men. And the kind of repentance I'm talking about this afternoon 
a kind of repentance that humbles us and makes us turn to the Savior is an act and a gift of a gracious God. In Acts 5, verse 31, we see that repentance is granted by God to people. Him did God exalt with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, to give repentance to Israel and remission of sins. We cannot whip ourselves up into repentance. We cannot go and so lay such a guilt trip on people to give them repentance. Repentance can only come directly from the hand of God who graciously gives it to us as a gift. What kind of gift is that? When I give gifts, I want people to be happy. I want gifts to make them smile. God, the Bible gives us a gift that breaks our heart. God gives us a gift that brings tears to our eyes. What kind of gift is that? We'll stop and think about it. People who have stony, brittle hearts need to be broken before a new heart can replace them. It's a great gift to be humbled by your sin that you might enjoy the sweetness of salvation. You know, the Passover meal pointed that out to the Jews all the time. The Passover meal was something that they had to go through uh, bitterness, the eating of bitter herbs. When they grieved for their sins and saw the slavery that it brought them, and then finally they ate the sweet lamb to know the goodness of God by contrast. Repentance is necessary if we're going to enjoy the grace of God in all of its fullness and all of its sweetness. And so we must all pray that God would turn us, that we might be turned. Now, I suppose only Reformed people understand that, uh, that paradox. I must pray God would turn me around that I might turn myself around because only God has the power to change a sinner's heart. Only God has the power to change my attitude, to humble me, to bring me back to himself. I want you to note the stringency of John's words now in Luke 3. We know what repentance is. We know the purpose of John's preaching. We see the significance of this. But John said to the multitudes that went out to be baptized, You offspring of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Oh, John. No, John, don't. John, you're going to scare away the crowds. John, just when the church is beginning to grow. John, just when you're getting people interested in your ministry, don't start talking like that. Don't start questioning them this way. Don't start putting them down. I mean, it's a terrible thing. John says, who told you to come here? You snakes. You know what happens when you gather together wood that's going to be burned and a bunch of garbage and so forth? Well, in the ancient world, John knew, you set that on fire and you're going to see snakes going out from that. All He says, who wants snakes to flee from the wrath to come? Boy, what devastating words. This is not the way to win friends and influence people, John. This is not the way to see church growth statistics really start building up. And what's John say? Bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. Show that you're repentant by the outward manifestation of your life. And don't play games with me. And then John, as though he's reading their hearts, says, and don't begin to say inside yourself, wait a minute, we've got Abraham to our father. Just who do you think you are, John? We're Jews. Abraham is our father. We don't have to listen to this. John says, don't you start saying inside yourself, you have Abraham to your father. I say to you, God's able to raise up children from these stones. If that's all he wants is people with a name, he can make stones into children. 
And even now the axe lies at the root of trees. Every tree, therefore, that brings not forth good fruit is and cast into the fire. By their fruits ye shall know them, Jesus said. And John said, God is now laying the axe of judgment to the root of the trees. And when he comes to a tree and he doesn't find fruit on it, God is not going to say, well, there's a sign posted here that says Christian. I guess we can't throw him away. John says the axe is going to be laid right to the root. If this is a dead tree, it'll be thrown into the fire. It'll be burned up. Only the trees bearing fruit show that they have inward life. And so there must be a true indication of repentance by an outward change and not mere profession. Bringing forth the fruit and meat for repentance is the tough part of saying you're sorry. And we've noticed in raising children, we've noticed in our own lives, you can teach people to say, I'm sorry, when they've done something wrong. Much harder to get them to act like they're sorry, to make real changes. Sometimes we're sorry because we want to avoid judgment. Sometimes we say we're sorry because we are, but it's just a passing thing. It's for the moment. John says, bring forth the fruit that's appropriate to repentance. Show God by a changed life. And what kind of fruit would that be? How what kind of changed life should you have? Well, I want to suggest that if you look at your life and you see those areas where you are most sinful, you should be thinking about the positive virtue that corresponds to the vice that you see inside yourself. Let's say you tend to be a stingy person. Let's say you tend to be self-centered. If you are truly repentant, the Bible says, if you want to bring forth the fruit that's appropriate to repenting of that stinginess and self-centeredness, then become someone who's generous to others. Freely give for the needs of others. Don't worry about yourself first. Put others before yourself. If you're a person who has had a bad mouth, who needs to learn to speak more peaceably, then that doesn't mean just slam up. And that's what people tend to do. You go and you show someone they're not talking the way they should. There's okay anything then. That's not repentance. True repentance says, well, I need to learn to speak in a sweet and gentle way that gives praise to God and brings peace to my fellow man. If I'm a person who has been guilty of stealing, I must now become more generous in giving to the poor. That's what Paul tells us in Ephesians 4. Let him who stole steal no more, but rather work with his hands, that he may have something to give to those in need. So you get the idea. Look at the sins that characterize your life and say, what is the positive virtue that corresponds to that? Don't go to a point of neutrality, just clamming up or not doing anything. Go the other way. Start bringing forth the fruit of a good life in the place of that life you've been living. And remember, judgment is about to fall on all fruitless trees. Verse 9 puts it this way, Now the axe lies at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that brings forth not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. If we don't start bringing forth fruit, we have no reason to assure ourselves that we are right with God. If we are repentant, we have no right to assure ourselves that we are right with God. If we claim to have faith in Jesus Christ, we have no right to assure ourselves that we are right with God unless there's fruit. Somebody says, no, wait a minute, Pastor. That's, that sounds a bit harsh. That sounds a bit stringent. Well, what do you think of these words? The axe is laid at the root. What would you have me tell you this afternoon? Would you have me give you a false assurance? Hey, everything's all right. I like you. God must like you. You like yourself. God must like you. Everything's going to be okay. 
The Bible says, no, bring forth fruit or don't fool yourself. You're not repentant. You don't have faith. You don't have a new life. Show forth the fruit. Well, but the dying thief, he didn't have time to bring forth fruit, and Jesus said he could be saved. Well, I have word for you. If there was ever an opportunity to bring forth fruit, it was hanging on that cross. When he said, I'm going to follow this one over here who's hanging on a cross, he publicly asked Christ before men in a way that we don't dare do very often. That man did start showing immediately a heart that was different, a heart that was right with God. Bring forth fruit or don't fool yourself. And that's why the remainder of this passage that we don't have time to look at the details of tells us in general, every class of men that came said to John, and what should we do? And what should we do? And what should we do? And John had answers for him. Preachers today don't have answers like that. They're kind of mush mouths when it comes to the particulars of how we should lead the Christian life. Well, I don't know. Be good, you know. Uh, try, try to please God. But the Bible gives us very particular things. You notice this? When John answered, he said, Be content with your wages. Don't extort. Don't use violence. If you have food, give to him who is in need. Very, very concrete, specific things. You say to me, Pastor, well, what should we do? Well, you see, there's too many of a general answer, is there? What you should do is go home this afternoon and make a catalog of those things that break your heart before God. And then put on the other side of the page all those things that you think are the God-honoring virtues that correspond to it. And then begin this afternoon to do one of those things. And tomorrow, two of them. And on Tuesday, three of them. That's what you should do. And show that you really do have life within you. That you don't like sinning. And you're going to make every effort, by the grace of God, to have a different kind of life now. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you with what must seem as a strange request this afternoon. We come and ask you to break our hearts. Because we're a proud people. And we're a comfort-loving people. And we don't like to go through things that are difficult. And we don't like to be exposed and embarrassed and shamed. But God, we ask you to humble us under your hand. Not as those who hate us might humble us. Not as the world might do. To simply put us down and crush us and leave us there. But God, we ask you this afternoon to humble us under your gracious hand. That having felt the bitter sting of sin and the remorse that comes because of our pollution, we might then feel the grace and love and sweetness that comes because you have saved us. Make us a truly repentant people. Turn us around and help us not simply to profess that we have Abraham as our father, that we are in the right situation socially, that we say the right words, that we even have the right confession, that we even are heirs of a certain form of theology. Father, help us not to make those sorts of professions, but rather be fruitful trees that show forth in the manner of our life belong to you. We are truly alive, and we are on the road to health and recovery. We ask you to do these things in our life this afternoon, not just to comfort us that we aren't going to hell, 
we ask you to do these things that you might receive the praise and the glory, that we might come to look more and more like our Savior Jesus Christ, to imitate his life, to reflect his holiness, to show forth your praise. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.